The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. It's a great pleasure to be back with you again this morning. Those of you here last night will hopefully remember that I talked about uh, certain aspects of the doctrine of Scripture as reflected upon by theologians in the early church. I want to move forward today about a thousand years to look at the, the figure of Martin Luther. I think it's, uh, it's helpful, particularly in a, in a day when there is so much information out there, when there are so many books being published. I think it's, it's very useful for Christians to have a particular hero or one or two particular characters that they uh, get to grips with in a, in a special way. And for me, one of those is is Martin Luther. Luther's a, a fascinating character in many ways. He's one of the, the, that rare breed of Protestant that actually write with a sense of humor. Uh, by and large, Protestant writing uh, is very pious and humorless. Luther, on the other hand, is an extremely humorous and witty writer, a very explosive personality, uh, definitely a sort of street fighter when it came to polemical engagement. Uh, he was, uh, had a, a very interesting wife. Um, his wife was probably one of the great home brewers of her generation. Um, a most wise choice, one might say, in, in a partner. Beautiful story, actually, of how they got married in uh, 1524, 1525, as the Reformation is starting to make great gains uh, across Europe and as battle lines are becoming very clearly drawn. Uh, monasteries are closing down. Uh, as, as Protestantism takes hold, monasteries are closing down, which pushes a lot of eligible men onto the market, if you like. At the same time as the monasteries are closing down, nunneries are closing down too. And uh, a, a town near to Wittenberg, where Luther was, the, the monastery there, the, the nuns decide, or the nunnery, the nuns decide they've had enough of being nuns and it's time to, to escape into Protestant territory. So they hide themselves in fish barrels and get transported to Wittenberg. Um, can't imagine that they smelt very, very nice when they arrived there. But you have this group of women arriving in Wittenberg who looking for husbands, if you like. And the, uh, the obvious place for them to look is the monastery that's closing down. And so the monks pair off with the nuns until there's just one nun left. Uh, and Luther, who by that time is uh, well into his... 40s, and by early modern standards, that's really far into middle age, is a, a confirmed bachelor, but decides that he can't leave this, this lady all by herself, and so uh, marries her, and they have a long and very happy marriage. And as I say, she was a great beer brewer. She was also a great gardener. Luther, it's, a, it's, not, uh, it's not widely known, but Luther at points in the Reformation uh, found it difficult to make ends meet financially. And so he and his wife would hire themselves out as gardeners for the people of Wittenberg and uh, cultivate gardens. Luther also hired himself out as a carpenter. 
but apparently he wasn't very good at carpentry and people would complain. So he had to, uh, to scrap that as a, as a second source of income. But in addition to, to reading Luther just for the, the fun of reading Luther, I think it's important to read historical figures as well because so often issues that we tend to think of as distinctive in our day and generation have their counterparts in previous eras. Talked last night a little bit about Manichaeism and said you know, it's not dissimilar in some of its sort of sociological and theological uh, shape to Scientology today. There's an example of a precedent in history and by looking at how the church has related to that in times past, one can get insights into how we might relate to it today. And in Luther's day, there were a number of issues uh, that have direct, I think, connections with the kind of struggles that are going on today. Not, more, not all of them will be immediately obvious, but I hope as we, as we work through Luther's thinking relative to Scripture today, we'll see that there are areas where Luther has insights Still, that are still valuable to us today. And I want to focus this morning on a particular incident in Luther's life, and that is uh, the great, one of the great intellectual clashes of Western history. It takes place in 1524-1525 stroke between Martin Luther, the great German reformer, and a man called Desiderius Erasmus. Erasmus was probably the preeminent intellectual of his day. He was a Catholic. He was... Uh, what they call in the 16th century a humanist. We tend to bring all kinds of baggage to, to uh, the, the word humanist today, but in the 16th century, a humanist, well, it's a term we use for 16th century men who were interested in what they call humane letters. Who studied classics at the uh, University of Oxford, the first two years of your course are what they call literae humaniores, humane letters. Essentially what humanism was in the 16th century it was a movement of cultural reform that saw the ills of society as being potentially solvable if you go back to the world of classical Rome and classical Greece and recover the great texts of the classical era and make them integral to your education in the present. That's what a humanist is. It's not somebody who denies the existence of God. It's somebody who we might say is a man of letters, man of culture and learning. And Erasmus was preeminent among these men and the and the movement of humanism has significance for Christianity because it creates this interest in ancient texts and that of course has a payoff for the church because the church is built on what on ancient texts and Erasmus is the man who puts together a critical edition of the Greek text of the New Testament and therefore paves the way for the Reformation because in the Middle Ages, the text of Scripture that they used was Jerome's Latin translation, to which I alluded last night. And there are certain key words in Jerome's translation of the Bible that don't capture the nuance of the Greek, and worse than that, actually distort the nuance of the Greek. Most significantly would be the word for justify. The Latin word for justify carries strong connotations of to make righteous. It is a process, transforming kind of term. Whereas in Greek, the word is much more declarative. And you can see how in the Middle Ages, the notion of justification as transformation finds precedence in a mistranslation of the Bible. So Erasmus 
as this great humanist, is doing uh, important work that will have a payoff for Protestantism. This creates problems for Erasmus because when Luther bursts onto the scene in 1517, he and Erasmus are seen as part and parcel of the same kind of thing that's going on, this rise of new learning, this radical interest in ancient texts. And they're seen as being you know, on the same page. And in 15, uh, uh, 1520, um, Erasmus is asked his view of, uh, of Luther at that point. And what do you think of Martin Luther? He's coming under huge pressure from the church. He's about to be excommunicated. Erasmus, you're the great intellectual of the day. What do you think about this situation? And Erasmus rather flippantly says, Luther's committed two errors. He's attacked the lifestyle of the Pope, and he's attacked the bellies of the monks. In other words, Luther has launched this attack on the corruption and greed that's in the church. And that statement will haunt Erasmus for years to come, because it places him under suspicion of being essentially a Protestant. Luther, of course, he's excommunicated in 1520, and then in an interesting legal move, because he's essentially a non-person, a non He's tried by an imperial diet at Worms in 1521. The emperor. You have these two sort of powers in Europe at the time. You have the church and you have the Holy Roman Empire. And they've both got to sort the Luther problem. Theology in the 16th century is always political. If you take a theological stand, you're also taking a political stand. And to be a Protestant is to say something about the Holy Roman Empire as much as it is to say something about the church. So the Holy Roman Empire try Luther in 1521. And you have this remarkable scene where four years ago, the man who was unknown four years ago, goes to the German city of Worms and has to stand and give an account of his theology in front of the great powers, the political powers of the day. The emperor himself is there. Luther's tried by the Diet of Worms, and Worms sort of condemns Luther, but in order to avoid civil war in the empire, the verdict is applied in a somewhat equivocal way. But anyway, by 1521, Luther's excommunicated, and he's a non-person in the empire. This means that Erasmus comes under huge pressure to uh, define how he relates to this man. Is he for him, or is he against him? And so in 1524, Erasmus publishes a book entitled The Diatribe on Free Will. And this is famous. It's one of those books that's famous more for the response it precipitates than for the book itself. Erasmus's Diatribe on Free Will addresses what Erasmus sees as one of the fundamental issues in Luther's theology. Is the human will bound in such a way that human beings are incapable of making the first move towards God in and of themselves. He decides that that's the point on which he's going to fight Luther. And Luther responds a year later with his book on the bondage of the will, 1525. And popularly speaking, that's how many of us, if you're aware of the debate, you tend to think, well, that's what the debate's about. It's about whether the will is bound or not. That's fundamentally the issue. But actual fact, another thing that church history often reveals is it's very rare that you have a doctrine that stands all by itself. Most doctrines connect to other doctrines. And in fact, at the heart of the debate between Luther and Erasmus is also a debate about the nature of Scripture. Luther said something in 1520 to which Erasmus takes great exception. And what Luther says is this. 
The meaning of Scripture is, in and of itself, so certain, accessible and clear that Scripture interprets itself and tests, judges and illuminates everything else. What Erasmus didn't like was the fact that Luther said Scripture was clear. Why didn't he like that? Because that paved the way for making assertions. And Erasmus's real game in 1524 is not so much to attack Luther on the will, but his real game is to say, well, look, Scripture's kind of obscure, and therefore we shouldn't fall out over persnickety little points. It's all pretty obscure, really, so you know, why can't we all just get along? That's the real agenda of Erasmus in 1524. And Erasmus, in direct uh, opposition to Luther, says this, about scripture. There are some secret places in the Holy Scriptures into which God has not wished us to penetrate more deeply. And if we try to do so, then the deeper we go, the darker and darker it becomes. By which means we are led to acknowledge the unsearchable majesty of the divine wisdom and the weakness of the human mind. So you have Luther saying, look, scripture's clear. And on the other hand, you have Erasmus saying, no, scripture's obscure. Luther saying scripture's clear so that we can make assertions about the Christian faith. And Erasmus is saying, no, scripture's obscure, so we shouldn't fall out about assertions. We should bow down and worship the majesty of God because he really is that mysterious. Underlying Erasmus's case, I think there are a number of factors. First of all, Erasmus's view of Christianity is very different to that of Luther. Essentially, Erasmus thinks that Christianity is about practical morality. If you look at his other writings on the Christian faith, he talks all about the philosophy of Christ. What does he mean by that? Christianity is all about following Christ, doing what Christ did. There's a famous incident, I think it takes place in Oxford, when Erasmus is walking down the street with uh, a man called Dean John Collett, who was one of the great hum English humanists of the time, early 16th century, and as they're walking along, uh, Collett points out a group of men at the side of the street who are putting money into a box in front of an image, image of Christ, and says, you know, isn't that wonderful? Isn't the piety of these men wonderful as they worship the image of God? And Erasmus turns and points to a beggar lying in the, in the gutter and says, you know, if you want to worship the image of God, you should give your money to help the one who carries the image of God, the beggar in the street. I think that's you know, one of Erasmus's finest hours in many ways deeply sympathetic to Erasmus's sentiment there. But he also tells you something very deep about Erasmus. His understanding of Christianity was it was not a set of doctrines. It was a way of life. Now those of you, of course, who read in contemporary evangelical literature, that phrase is probably setting off alarm bells already. How often has it been said in the history of the church, right down to the present, Christianity is not a set of doctrines, it's a way of life. So I was driving to the airport yesterday morning, anticipating a relatively short and trouble-free flight to uh, Colorado. Um, I should have known the day was going bad because I switched on to NPR and Brian McLaren's voice came out of the radio at me. And I said, hey, things are really going downhill at this point in the day. Uh, you know, 7.30 in the morning and I'm listening to Brian McLaren. Um, Brian McLaren's point in many of his books and statements has been Christianity is not a set of doctrines. It's a way of life. Erasmus was saying it in the 16th century there in the 16th century. Secondly, 
Erasmus has an understanding of authority which places interpretation of Scripture in the hands of the church hierarchy. Just think about it. If you have Erasmus's view of Scripture, it's all pretty obscure and I, I really don't know how to understand it. Well, how do you understand it? You have to turn to the church and look to the church. And this is where you start to see connections emerging between views of, you know, uh, between individual Christian doctrines, one and another. Your view of Scripture will automatically connect your understanding of authority. If you think Scripture is obscure, then how do you find what Scripture means? Erasmus has a great answer. The church. Erasmus is understanding the authority of the church hierarchy and the nature of Scripture go hand in hand. I'm going to come back to this later, but I would suggest to you that one of the reasons why we've seen a number of high-profile conversions over the last couple of years from evangelicalism to Roman Catholicism is this. If you buy into the contemporary trend that says all texts are obscure and their meaning is very difficult to discern, if not impossible to discern, where do you look for your authority? Because the Reformation, in some senses, is not just a stand about justification by faith, it's a stand about the clarity of Scripture. And if Scripture is not clear then integrity requires that, if you like, we go back to where we came from, to Roman Catholicism. It's not a crime, it's not illegal. It's the place one should go. So, his understanding of church authority places the interpretation of Scripture in the hands of the church hierarchy. And both of those points, thirdly, if you like, render scriptural clarity as by and large unnecessary. Why do you need to understand the Apostle Paul? You don't. You just need to be able to read the Gospels and see what Jesus did in order to know how you should behave. You should prioritize the Sermon on the Mount over Paul. Except if you've ever read the Sermon, you know, I love it when people say, well, I'm really into the Sermon on the Mount, but I don't like Paul. I think, Have you ever read the Sermon on the Mount? Any man who looks at a woman with lust in his eyes has committed adultery with her? That's wild. That's crazy stuff, if you like. That's not just be nice to your neighbor. That really condemns just about every man on the face of the earth. So most people who are into the Sermon on the Mount, by and large, I think, have not read it. But it sounds kind of cool uh, when you're being interviewed. Luther's convictions, however, are very different. For Luther, the primary personal question with which he wrestles, particularly in the second decade of the 16th century, is where can I find a gracious God? Luther doesn't, know any, he doesn't need to know how to live. He needs to know how to die. He's not so worried about what he's doing here and now. What happens when he dies and falls into the hands of the living God? Where's he going to find a God who's gracious? So he's not interested in really in looking at how Christ behaved or reading the Sermon on the Mount. That serves only to tell him how far short he falls and how terrifying his end will be. He needs to know, where do I find this gracious God? The answer that he comes up to that is, guess what? He finds it in Christ. And he finds Christ in the Word. The Word written. The Word preached. The Word gossiped among believers, if you like. And the Word as it is attached to the sacraments of the Lord's Supper and baptism. And thirdly, he sees the content of this Word in two ways. He sees the Bible as law, telling you what you should do, but you can never do it. So you're condemned by it? Or he sees it as gospel, pointing you to Christ, the one who has fulfilled the law. And what does that tell you about the nature of Christianity? It's not a way of life, it's a set of doctrines, really, for Luther. 
Because the gospel is a declaration of who God is and then what he's done in Christ. There are ethical implications that flow from that, but the ethical implications are not the gospel. The gospel is Christ has died and is risen. It's a declaration of a state of affairs. So when you start to pick below the surface of this clash between Luther and Erasmus on the bondage of the will, you begin to see, well, actually, there's an issue of what Scripture is underlying this, and that connects immediately to what these men understand Christianity to be. And Luther says this, one of my favorite statements of Luther, in the bondage of the will, when Erasmus has been saying, you know, it's not about assertions, it's about a way of life, it's not a set of doctrines. Luther says this, nothing is more familiar or characteristic among Christians than assertion. Take away assertions and you take away Christianity. Luther makes a very clear point there. It's nothing to do with a way of life on that level. It's about assertions. And if you can assert nothing, there is no Christianity left. And I think if you dig deep enough in the writings of some uh, modern theologians. Yeah, Brian McLaren would be a good example. They're kind of open and honest about that. It's possible to be a Christian and be a Buddhist. It may not be easy, Brian McLaren says, but it's possible. Or to be a Christian and be, be a Muslim. He actually says that. Well, that's in some ways perfectly consistent because if you reduce Christianity to a way of life, then the assertions become relevant merely as they promote that way of life. And if Christ died and is risen is the way that you get to that way of life, that's great. If the cry, God is one and there is no other, is the way you get to it, then that's great too. If you're Tiger Woods and you know, the fact that you didn't meditate is what's led you to commit adultery again and again and again, get back to meditation. It's the way of life that's important, not the assertion. Nonsense, says Luther. Take away assertions and there's nothing left. For Luther, this all points to what he sees as the essentially doctrinal nature of preaching. Christianity is all for Luther about preaching in some ways because it is the essential medium of the Christian message. And preaching for Luther is of law and gospel. It is first of all a reminder of who God is and the demands he makes upon us which reminds us that we can never meet those demands, and then it is pointing us to Christ. But this issue of assertion and necessity of assertion, of course, has implications for how we understand Scripture. And Luther's response to Erasmus must be seen, I think, in light of this fundamental difference between Erasmus and Luther's understanding of the Christian life. Erasmus, as we've seen, says some issues in Scripture are too obscure to allow for certainty. And Scripture needs in general to be defined by an authority. Luther responds by saying no. Christianity is about assertions. And assertions require an essential perspicuity in Scripture. And while yes, the church plays a role in interpretation, we must redefine the nature of the church in order to understand that. And here again we see, I mentioned earlier, how understandings of authority connect to understandings of Scripture. For Luther, the church is essentially redefined as all of those who are united with the Lord Jesus Christ. And united to him are made priests and kings. Think about that. 
It's a radical break from the medieval notion that the church, in its very essence, is found in the pope and the cardinals. The teaching hierarchy of the church, it's an institution. All of Luther's theology undercuts that institution. You argue for justification by faith, you to some extent relativize and marginalize the role of the sacraments, and thereby weaken the power and the significance of the church hierarchy. By arguing for the essential perspicuity of Scripture, you weaken the power of the church hierarchy again. Luther takes it to its logical conclusion. By arguing that the church is, if you like, the assembly of believers, rather than a particular institution with a particular rule book, you do away with the medieval model in its entirety. Erasmus, of course, asks the obvious 16th century question of Luther. All this new stuff you're coming up with, Luther. Would God really have allowed such error to have persisted in the church for so many generations? Now, that's a powerful argument in the 16th century. It really doesn't carry any weight for the modern mindset because we tend to think that the newer it is, the more likely it is to be true. In the 16th century, people had new ideas, got burned at the stake. And people approved of that. Because culturally, if it's new, it's wrong. If it's true, it's somebody's got to have thought of it before. Luther responds, of course, well, the church is, the, is that which is led by the Spirit of God in Christ. So you can't work from the fact that this institution that you call the church has taught this stuff to the fact that this is necessarily true. And what you get in the 16th and 17th centuries are lots and lots of very long books arguing that you can trace key Reformation doctrines back to the early church. Some of those books are better than others. But part of the burden of Protestantism in the 16th and 17th century is to establish its Catholicity. By Catholicity, what I mean there is its connection to what is seen as the universal church throughout the ages. If we turn now to the first point, the essential perspicuity of Scripture, Luther argues on two fronts. First of all, he asserts the notion is important. It's the basis for his understanding of how Scripture can function in the church. If you think about it, think of how traumatic the 16th century was. uh, 1516, you're going to church and it's great because... You go in there and somebody talks in Latin and what you can hear you don't understand. And then you know, a couple of times a year maybe you, you take the, the Mass, you take the Lord's Supper. Uh, they don't give you the cup in case you spill it on the floor and you don't want to spill Christ's blood, but they give you the bread. Uh, and it's all done for you. Somebody says to you, well, what do you really believe? You say, well, I'm not really that sure, but the priest does it for me. It's all done for me. I take the bread, and that's just fine. 1518, same church, Lutheranism swept into town. You've got a problem. Now you go to church and you actually understand what the person's saying. And you might think that's a great thing, but I would suggest, no, most people would not feel comfortable with that. If you try to change a Bible translation from one that people don't understand to one they do understand, you will always find resistance. People don't necessarily like new things. They don't like change. So you go to church, not only is the guy speaking, but you've got to start believing for yourself. The priest doesn't do it all for you anymore. You've got to believe for yourself. So for Luther, it's essential that Scripture is perspicuous because of the personal responsibility to believe that Protestantism brings in its wake. 
takes me back to a point I made a few minutes ago. If you don't believe Scripture is clear, then you shouldn't be a Protestant. You're occupying a position that has no integrity whatsoever because it is central to Protestantism that the basic elements of Christianity are accessible to anybody who hears them. They are comprehensible. They are not rocket science. So, Scripture needs to be asserted as perspicuous for Luther because the individual responsibility to believe that Protestantism brings in its wake. But Luther is aware that perspicuity itself needs to be unpacked as a doctrine. And he makes an interesting distinction. He talks about perspicuity in two ways in his 1525 book on the bondage of the will. Internal perspicuity and external perspicuity. Deal with internal perspicuity first. Internal perspicuity relates to what we might call the faith relation. Luther says this, If you speak of internal perspicuity, the truth is that nobody who has not the Spirit of God sees a jot of what is in the Scriptures. See what he's saying there? If you don't have the Spirit of God, Scripture is incomprehensible to you in a certain way. Now, does that mean that if you go out into the street and say to somebody, Jesus rose on the third day, and that means that you know, they put his body in the grave, they rolled a stone in front of it, and lo and behold, when they went back three days later, the stone was rolled away and the tomb was empty. Does that mean that people will be scratching their heads, reaching for their dictionaries, trying to work out what you're saying to them? Not at all. What Luther's referring to is the grasping of that by faith. He's asked once, uh, somebody asks him over a table talk, and if you get one book of Luther, get hold of his table talk. These are things that he said while he was uh, uh, sitting in the, in, uh, at his uh, dinner table, drinking the beer that no doubt his wife had brewed for him that day. I can't imagine what my wife's response would be if I asked her to brew me beer. Uh, would not be a very good one, I don't think. And of course, as Luther drinks more beer, so his table talk gets funnier and funnier. Um, one, one Saturday, he's at a friend's house, in fact, and he leaves early. And they say, why are you leaving early? And he says, well, I've got to go and get drunk. And they say to him, well, what do you got to go and get drunk for? And he says, well, I'm preaching on Noah, getting drunk tomorrow. And I need to know how he felt when he woke up. <laughs> so I thought it was an interesting sort of application of the, is it the Stanislavski method to, to preaching? Um, I can't even remember why I introduced that now. Um, it's just a good story, I guess. Uh, now, Luther is asked one day of a table, well, what's the difference between you and the Pope? And Luther says, well, on one level, there is no difference. I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God, God and man. I believe he came, lived and died on the cross, uh, rose again on the third day, and will come again to judge the living and the dead. He said, and the Pope believes all that too. So, he said, so they said, well, where's the difference? Like, what's this whole big Reformation deal about? And Luther says, the difference is, I believe he did it for me. And that's a nice way, I think, of expressing the faith relation, the kind of the existential grasping of Scripture. So for Luther, there's this internal perspicuity that the one who has the Spirit of God will grasp Scripture in a way that is not grasped by others. And I think uh, central to Luther's understanding of this is the, the first chapter of 1 Corinthians and the great contrast there between uh, wisdom and foolishness. For Luther, the one who has the Spirit of God will read Scripture through the lens of the cross and will allow their thoughts, if you like, to be rearranged by the cross in a way that the one who does not have the Spirit of God will not do so. So although the one who has not the Spirit of God can make sense 
in a kind of verbal linguistic way of what scripture says it makes no sense in terms of grasping the issue by faith so the first thing then is that Luther sees internal perspicuity as connected to his understanding of salvation grasping something by faith and this distinguishes him from what might call the left wing of the Reformation, the Anabaptists and the Spiritualists, who emphasize just being led by the Spirit. For Luther, believers are not just led by the Spirit. They're led by the Spirit to grasp the Word. Spirit and Word work in harmony. And it also divides him from what I might call, uh, as he described them, the Pope, if you like, that it's not just an intellectual exercise. There is this nice connection of the Spirit's impact on the individual and the objective Word of God that is brought together through the Word of the Spirit, work of the Spirit. And for Luther, that's internal perspicuity. It's accessible to everybody. means, if you like, that when you teach your kids and you say, um, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God and the Word became flesh, your five-year-old child can grasp that. but could also spend a lifetime studying it and never full, fully plumb the depths of it. It's perspicuous enough for anyone with the Spirit of God to grasp. The other side of perspicuity for Luther is external perspicuity, or sometimes he calls it external judgment. And this refers to public, what might call public aspects of interpretation. Luther says that all that is in Scripture is through the Word brought forth into the clearest light and proclaimed to the whole world. And for Luther, this is where the church is important. Again, this is something that jars against modern sensibilities. It comes out very nicely in a little piece he wrote uh, called Letter to Peter the Barber. Luther goes to, to get his hair cut one day and his uh, hairdresser says to him, I'm struggling with uh, uh, lack of assurance. What should I do? And Luther's first reaction is, go to church. And here's scripture being read and scripture being preached and the psalms being sung. It's interesting that his first instincts are to guide the man in a corporate direction. It isn't sort of go home, get on your knees, read your Bible by yourself and kind of try to build yourself up to having assurance. It's no, go to church. There are various reasons for that. One of them is the word there comes externally. You're confronted with it by somebody preaching it to you. But also for Luther, the context, the corporate context of the church is the normal place for scriptural interpretation. There is, for Luther, what I call in my notes here, a symbiotic relationship between individuals and the church in interpretation. Individuals grasp the word by faith for themselves. They test the proclamation of the church. As the minister preaches each week, as a Protestant, you can read your Bible and test to see whether what the minister is saying is true. Just because he's saying it as the minister doesn't mean you have to believe him. If he tells you the tomb was not empty on the third day, you can take him to Scripture and say, you preach beyond the bounds of what Scripture says there. And I don't have to believe you. But on the other hand, there is this emphasis upon the word coming externally and being proclaimed by the minister that challenges us as well. So for Luther, the perspicuity of Scripture also needs to be understood in a corporate way. It isn't just an intellectual exercise, even when it refers to the public aspects of interpretation. It involves being in the context of the church, hearing the word humbly, and testing it by Scripture. And that can work for Luther because he believes Scripture is basically clear. 
and you may not have an advanced degree in first century Judaism, but even as a humble believer, you should be able to tell when your pastor is preaching hokum on Paul on Romans. Of course, again, that flies in the face of so many modern sensibilities. One, the assumption that we really need to go to church to fully grasp what Scripture is teaching. Secondly, that actually Scripture interpretation is a whole lot easier than people by and large make it out to be. Notice, of course, who makes it out to be really complicated. By and large, it's the people whose jobs depend upon making it really complicated. And you're Americans, you should be suspicious of that kind of thing straight away. So, Luther then sets external perspicuity. It's, if you like, on one level, it's the grammatical meaning of Scripture. And because it uses ordinary language, when it's proclaimed in church, those who grasp ordinary language should be able to test what's being said by Scripture to discern whether what's being said is true or not. Both forms of perspicuity have the same objective basis, the Scriptures. The Scriptures are authoritative for Luther because they contain Christ. Interesting enough, that gives Luther one or two uh, interesting takes on the canon. He famously, of course, rejects the canonicity of the book of James. Again, one night over table talk, probably when he's had too much to drink, somebody says to him, what do you think of the book of James? And he says, if I had my choice, I would rip little Jimmy from the Bible and throw him on the fire. It's a pretty radical statement. Referring to canon, I think, not so much uh, inspiration there. And when uh, he, in the German uh, Lutheran Bible, he provides marginal notes, the bit in the book of James where James says, not many should aspire to be teachers. Luther has the audacity to write in the margin, oh James, if only you had taken count of your own advice. Luther is also aware, and this is where we need to add a bit of a nuance to perspicuity, Luther is aware that not every individual passage is as clear as every other. You'll concede that to Erasmus. There are passages that are difficult to understand. 1 Corinthians 11, women's head coverings. It's pretty difficult to discern exactly what's being got out there. It's a theological argument being made, but it can be obscure. Baptism for the dead. It's a tough one to grasp. But for Luther, perspicuity refers, if you like, to the essentials of the faith. Romans 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that's in some ways the heart of perspicuity for Luther. The essential doctrines, as Luther sees them, are there and are clear for us to see. This has, I think, practical implications. Practical implications in the Reformation involving the training of pastors. Somebody throws you a Greek testament. It's not that perspicuous, really, is it? Unless, of course, you understand Greek. Again, Luther's not referring perspicuity to the original texts. But Luther does believe that translation is not that difficult. And if you get hold of a good translation, then what the Greek text is saying, what its content is, is relatively perspicuous and straightforward to the one who picks it up and reads it. It's important to have good translators. But by and large, good translations give you good access to what Scripture is saying. Maybe not to every nuance, but to the essential doctrines of the faith. You read the New Testament and you can de- uh, declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that Christ has raised him from the dead. I think it also has an impact for Luther on the notion of catechizing. 
What do all the ref reformers do fairly quickly as they establish churches? They produce catechisms. Why do they produce catechisms? Because they want to give individual Christian believers the tools they need to understand what Scripture is saying. Vernacular Scripture I've already mentioned. Very, very important. So, as I've said, Luther makes uh, a number of qualifying assertions. I've actually got a couple of quotations here I'll give you on, on the, uh, the, the, what he sees as the, the really clear and essential doctrines of Scripture. Scripture, he says, makes the straightforward affirmation that the Trinity, the Incarnation, and the unpardonable sin are facts. There is nothing obscure or ambiguous about that. We might say, well, Scripture doesn't contain the word Trinity. How come that's clear? Well, it seems to me very clear, particularly if you read the Gospel of John, that you know, God is one. Jesus makes claims to be God. Jesus talks to his Father as another person. And the Holy Spirit is also referred to in personal categories. It's not rocket science to get to the doctrine of the Trinity. There may be complex nuances there, but the essential elements are really quite clear. Luther says all the articles which Christians hold should be fully certain to themselves and also supported against opponents by such plain and clear scriptures as to stop all their mouths so that they can say nothing in reply. Underlying both of those statements is Luther's supreme confidence in the Holy Spirit to guide the believer to correct understanding. And secondly, his adherence to the standard Protestant position that obscure passages are to be understood in the light of clear ones. It's very interesting when you chat to Jehovah's Witnesses and they try to set John chapter 1 in the context of Revelation. That's just stupid, to put it bluntly. It's very clear that the context of John chapter 1 is not the book of Revelation. Whatever French social theorists tell us, interpreting text, by and large, is not as difficult as it's made out to be. You laugh at me saying John chapter 1 is not the context of Revelation, or Revelation is not the context of John chapter 1. Why do you laugh? Because you know that what I've stated is an utterly obvious thing. Why do you know that it's utterly obvious? Not because you've got advanced degrees in critical theory, but because it's utterly obvious. It's much less complicated than people have made it out to be. Luther then, therefore, thinks that many errors in interpretation should not be described as the fault of Scripture. Many of them are a result of lack of attention to grammar. Some of them are the result of moral failure. Sin and Satan, Luther says. Human beings are enthralled to Satan, who darkens their minds and holds them in bondage. If he did not do so, a single word from God would convert the whole world. So how can we summarize what I've said this morning? First of all, assertion is necessary because of how Luther understands Christianity to be. And there is this relationship, chicken and egg relationship almost, between what you understand Scripture to be and what you understand Christianity to be. It does not surprise me that a generation of Christians who've been brought up to think that Bible interpretation is really very, very complicated find the attraction of a notion that you know, Christianity is a way of life, not a set of doctrines. It's a way out of the maze. There is an intimate connection between what you understand Scripture to be and what you understand the Gospel to be. Secondly, Protestantism demands a perspicuous scripture. You can think of that in a number of ways. Internal, with reference to individuals, 
an external with reference to the church's corporate proclamation. That's consonant with the Protestant's understanding of the church and of salvation. And thirdly, I think scriptural interpretation, despite what some modern Protestants have made it, has both an individual and corporate dimension. We need, if you like, to avoid the individualism of those who are just led by the Spirit and the sort of rigid hierarchalism of a strong view of Roman supremacy. Luther, if you like, is consistently trying to strike a balance between individual and corporate authority, and scripture, perspicuity of scripture, allows him to do that. The Bible has been given by Luther to the laity, but Luther knows that the Bible means some things and it doesn't mean others. And in order for him to make that assertion, he requires something equivalent to our understanding of perspicuity. So, the bondage of the will, then, Luther's great response of 1525, far from being just a wrestling over the nature of the Christian will in salvation, can also be seen as the great struggle over the nature of authority, with the Protestant Luther attempting to overthrow the authority of Rome by asserting the right and the responsibility of the individual believer to interpret the Scriptures, but also delimiting this by stressing the need for public standards of accountability, church, rules of language, etc., in the task. And it takes me back, I suppose, just in conclusion, to what I've already said on a number of occasions in this lecture. Protestantism is under attack on a number of fronts at the moment. One of them is the reshaping of the doctrine of justification. And the reshaping of doctrine of justification, as it's taking place among the theologians of the so-called new perspective, is not entirely unrelated to understanding of the clarity or obscurity of Scripture. The other area, I think, where Protestantism is, is coming under attack and doesn't really see the significance of it as yet is the notion that, scripture, that texts are obscure. If you argue that texts are obscure, you believe that, then Protestantism falls because Protestantism depends for its very understanding of the Gospel on Scripture being clear because Protestantism is about an assertion of a state of affairs, not about the promotion of a way of life. 